So we are uh, in a series on suffering, um, if you're just joining us or you haven't been with us. And uh, it's a series called Purpose and Suffering. And as we are kind of in a season of suffering, we have been exploring uh, why, why we suffer. You know, uh, we do not suffer needlessly. The Bible, in fact, gives us various reasons that God has for us to suffer and we've been exploring those things, and today we're actually going to talk about uh, something slightly more particular, and it is the idea of unjust suffering. You know, why do we suffer unjustly? And, um, you know, so there are kind of different kinds of suffering. I'll, I'll, I'll cover just, I'll talk about just a few different types of suffering um, real quick just to start, because not all suffering is the same, not all suffering is equal. Right, and so uh, one of the kinds of suffering we could think about is what I would call just kind of natural suffering. It is suffering as a result of living in a fallen world. Um, you know, and we've discussed this before in the series, but, you know, the suffering, the groaning of creation. Uh, I actually ran a bit this week, uh, as I know some of you did, and um, I'll get into the, the reasons for that in a second. But, uh, you know, so 2.23 miles uh, I didn't think it would be <laughs> like that bad. I didn't think it would be that hard. And I didn't even really run. I kind of power walked it. And yet, uh, my body, even today, is kind of suffering <laughs> from that walk. Now, uh, from that power walk. And that is really no one's fault. You know, it's, if anything, it's kind of my fault. But it's not, no one is to blame for that kind of suffering. No one needs to be blamed for that kind of suffering. It's not really my fault or anyone's fault. It's just kind of a fact of life. It is this natural suffering that we endure just over time, whether it's the result of something like that or you get older or you get sick. Like these are kind of a natural suffering that we face. Now, another type of suffering would be a just suffering or deserved suffering as a result of doing something wrong. So if you were to do something wrong, if I and it could be something, you know, relatively small. Like if I worked at a large company, you know, I insulted my boss behind his back and he found out about it and I got punished in some way or demoted or something like that. That would be kind of a, uh, a just suffering or let's say something proportional. You know, let's say I actually did something wrong. I, I messed up and then I found some consequence as a result of that. Or let's say I broke the law. I stole something and I went to prison. I actually did it. I was found guilty and I went to prison. That would be a just suffering. It would be something, it's suffering, but it's something that I would deserve. And then there's unjust suffering. Now I've already alluded to this, but, um, you know, a video came out this week, Ahmaud Arbery, age 25, uh, February 23rd, on February 23rd, he was jogging on a road in, in pretty much broad daylight near his mother's house in Brunswick, Georgia, and he was stopped by two men. He was assaulted, and he was shot to death. And that's unjust suffering for that man, for that family, and for that community. That it, and that's an, it's an extreme unjust suffering, but it is unjust suffering. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What is, 
what are we supposed to make of that? Like, what is the point of unjust suffering? And as Christians, how can we approach that idea? How can we approach the idea of unjust suffering in a way that is glorifying to God? Now, I'm going to actually just give you the point right now. Um, What is the point of unjust suffering? Uh, Unjust suffering is particularly exemplary of the gospel. Unjust suffering is particularly exemplary of the gospel of Christ. And um, what we'll do is we're going to explore, okay, what does that mean? Hopefully by the end of this, you will understand what I mean by that statement, that we'll more fully flesh it out and discuss some of the implications of that statement. And so uh, if you guys have your Bibles, let's um, go ahead and open them up to the book of First Peter. It's right there on your screen if you don't have your Bible in front of you. First Peter chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 18. First Peter chapter 2 verse 18. And um, we'll read all the way through uh, verse 25. And this is God's word, and it says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's read on. Verse 21 says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Now, Peter says in this passage, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect. And so he's talking, in this passage, Peter's actually talking about, um, so there's something in a lot of the letters that's called the household codes. And so they will go through the different members of the household. Uh, there would be something for husbands. There would be something for wives. There would be something. And, and it would be in relation to one another. There would be something for parents and children. And this was for servants. And servants essentially are slaves. This is written to slaves. And what Peter writes is, you know, slaves, be subject to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So he's saying, not only should you be good to your masters if they're good to you, but you should also be good and essentially submissive to your masters uh, who are unjust, who treat you wrongly. And he speaks to the merits of, if you do wrong and you're punished for it, then that is 
essentially a just suffering, and there is no merit to that. There is nothing good about that. There is no grace there. But if you are good and you suffer, so if you're, if you're bad and you suffer, if you do something wrong and you suffer for it, then there's nothing good about that. There's nothing to be gained there. But if you do good and you suffer for it, then there is something to be gained there. And then in verse 21, it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. And it goes on to kind of talk about what Jesus went through, what Jesus endured, and what Jesus faced, and that that is what we are supposed to follow, that Jesus faced an unjust suffering, and we are meant to follow that. Now, I'm going to go through three implications okay, for what this main idea. Again, our main idea is that unjust suffering, and I should say in Christ, in Christ, unjust suffering is particularly evidentiary of the gospel. Now, a few implications, and then we will loop back to this main idea in the end. But I want to go over three implications, okay? First, in Christ, unjust suffering can be endured. Unjust suffering can be endured. Now, very quickly, what was the life of a servant like in the first century? Now, Paul is addressing... You know, so again, he's talking about these household codes. When he talks about these slaves, what, what are these slaves going through? Like, what is their life like? Now, harsh treatment of slaves was socially acceptable and probably expected by the Romans. Many did not, you know, they were treated as, well, essentially they were treated as property. Even ones that were treated well were still treated as property. Aristotle wrote, uh, one thing that Aristotle wrote was, there can be no injustice done to slaves since they have no rights. So slaves were not considered to have rights. However, it's not quite the same as, for example, like American slavery. Um, slaves weren't all of the same class. They were not all kind of uh, doing manual labor. Uh, you know, one, one commentator wrote that doctors, teachers, writers, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, and sea captains all comprised the slave population. So it was, a, it was slightly more varied. Uh, nevertheless, Peter not only tells slaves to stay under the authority of their masters, he's, he tells them, stay submissive regardless of the situation even to unjust masters. So regardless of what kind of job they had, regardless of uh, what kind of situation they're in, regardless of whether or not their slavery was voluntary, because there, be, there, there were voluntary ways that you could go into slavery or there were other involuntary ways. Now, regardless of any of those circumstances, Peter essentially says, this is what you should do. Now, I'll get into why didn't Peter say slavery should be abolished? Now, why didn't he say that here? Now, we'll get into that a little bit later. But for now, what we can see is that Peter is saying your suffering, even as a slave, can be endured. This even unjust suffering. 
If the gospel is powerful enough to help slaves endure the suffering of slavery, then it is powerful enough to help us endure any suffering. Now, life is, is tough right now, I would say, and we're all facing some kind of suffering. Now, there is the normal suffering that is due to this pandemic that is taking place, and in many places and in really even, even in our kind of community, there is unjust suffering that is taking place. There is, you know, I mean, obviously we just talked about that case with Ahmaud Arbery. There have been other cases like that in the past. There have been other cases like that in the present. Um, there, was one, there was one case um, at a Sam's Club in Midland, Midland, Texas, where an, an Asian family of four uh, was essentially, well, three of them uh, were stabbed, including a, a two-year-old and a six-year-old child. And uh, the person who did it did it because he thought they were Chinese and thought that they were spreading the coronavirus. I believe that's what he said. And, I mean, these are obviously extreme examples. There's, I, I mean, a friend of mine posted something I saw on Facebook. A, you know, a couple friends of mine have posted things on Facebook. I'm sure yours have as well about kind of racist incidents that have taken place. And yeah, that's that's uh, that's an unjust suffering. That's that's to no fault of the person who is receiving the suffering. And what I would say just here before I move on is that Jesus faced such suffering, and he did it so that when we would face it, he could empathize with us, he could comfort us, he could remind us that we are not alone in that suffering. No suffering can take away the life and joy and peace that he offers us. It doesn't mean, this is not to say that suffering somehow becomes less painful or less grievous or, le you know, it's not like, oh, well, it's just not a big deal. Like, that's not what this is meant to be. It's, it's meant to be, yes, that is true and real suffering. It is unjust. And yet, Jesus himself faced it so that he could be with us when we face it. So implication one, unjust suffering can be endured. Okay, here's implication two. In Christ, unjust suffering should be expected. In Christ, unjust suffering should be expected if unjust suffering particularly displays the gospel, then we should, as Christians, expect to go through it. Do you understand what I'm saying? If there is a particular, if it's particularly exemplary, if it provides a special example of what the gospel is, then we should expect it. Right? In fact, this is what's written in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 13. It says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It says, do not be surprised at the fiery trial as though something strange were happening to you. When suffering happens... Do you think 
It's strange. Now, I don't know about you. <laughs> I don't know. It, this is, I, I always feel weird, like, doing this because I can't see you guys. <laughs> but, um, um, like, some people love rain. Okay, um, I don't, right? I think it's inconvenient. I don't like how my socks get wet. Uh, I don't like how traffic slows down dramatically when there's a slight sprinkle. Uh, but I also know, in general, that rain is, like, important, right? Fills, it, like, helps crops grow. It fills reservoirs. We need rain, you know, it gives life. And um, so I don't, like, love rain, but I don't, like, hate rain. I just think, you know, rain is is... Just, it is what it is. Except there's one specific situation when I get very upset about rain. And that is when I don't realize that it was going to rain that day. Right? And so there are these, there are times, and I don't know if you've ever done this, but, you know, we live in California, so there's not a ton of rain here. And sometimes I'll literally go out. It looks sunny. I'll go out. I'm wearing, like, flip-flops and, like, you know, shorts or whatever. With, I have no umbrella or anything. And all of a sudden, it's, like, pouring out. And in a situation like that, I get very upset. <laughs> I'm like, dang it. Like, why is it raining today? And then I, or I'm late to something. I didn't realize it was going to rain. I, I arrive very late. And that kind of upsets me. And sometimes I take it out in the, on the rain. But I know in truth, I really have only myself to blame because I was not prepared. I didn't, I didn't check the weather. I only expected it to be sunny every day. And really, this speaks to our view of unjust suffering. Because if we never expect it, if all we see it at, as is something truly strange, then we will always see it as something not only that needs to be fixed, but as something that we need to avoid at all costs. Again, I'm not saying that we can have such a view of suffering that is masochistic. I'm not saying that we can just go into any kind of suffering and just be like, oh, no, I'm just happy about it. It's fine. You know, I have Jesus. No, that, that's not what I'm saying at all. But if you don't realize that suffering is a part of life, even unjust suffering, if you don't realize that unjust suffering is a part of life, you will spend your whole life avoiding even the risk of it. That's how you'll build your life, right? You will think, my life is to get from A to B and avoid as much suffering as possible for my life to be as comfortable as it possibly can. Often, we try to arrange our lives in such a way that even the risk of suffering is completely bypassed. And this is why we must recognize that not only suffering, but unjust suffering is not only an inextricable part of living life, it is to be even more particularly expected as a follower of Christ. And this matters because if we believe suffering is strange, we will miss the purpose of suffering and instead focus on preventing suffering. Remember, if, if suffering is just inherently bad uh, and the absence of suffering is the highest good, then why would God himself suffer? Unjust suffering can be endured and it should be expected rather than simply avoided. Now here's implication number three. In Christ... 
unjust suffering must be actively engaged for the gospel. Actively engaged for the gospel. Now, I want to look very quick, just uh, very briefly again at First uh, Peter 2, 21. And it says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, now let's, so let's go back to the quote. Why doesn't Peter say to fight the institution of slavery? Why doesn't Peter say to fight the institution? Because he doesn't, right? He doesn't say like, oh, slavery should just be abolished or something like that, right? He doesn't say that. Now, when he says right there in uh, verse 21, when he uses that word example, this is, a, this is in fact a powerful imagery. The Greek word translated example there is the word hupogramon. Now, and what this word meant, what it, it was used to refer to a pattern of letters of the alphabet over which children learning to write would trace. So it is tracing these letters. So the English word uh, example, or even the word model, is a little bit too weak. Because Jesus' suffering is not simply an example or pattern or model, as if one of many. His unjust suffering is the paradigm by which Christians spell out the gospel. The unjust suffering of Christ is this, par- it is this something that Christians are supposed to essentially trace, to copy, in order for the gospel to be spelled out. This implies the the closest of copies. When we willingly suffer unjustly for the sake of the good of others, that is sacrificially. When we willingly suffer sacrificially, we most prominently point to who Jesus was and is. Um, One uh, commentator, one New Testament commentator, he wrote this, Wolf. He wrote this, he wrote, uh, The call to follow the crucified Messiah was, in the long run, much more effective in changing the unjust political, economic, and familial structures than direct exhortations to revolutionize them would ever have been. For an allegiance to the crucified Messiah, indeed, worship of a crucified God, is an eminently political act that subverts a politics of dominion at its very core. Do you guys see what he's saying there? He's saying that what Peter did here and what the New Testament writers did when they spoke on slavery to essentially attribute, to assume value, equal value and equal worth for a person who is in a position of slavery, but, you know, because of Christ, because the image of God is imprinted on them, but telling them rather than to fight for your freedom, what you should do is follow Jesus. Like, uphold a crucified Messiah, not just for slaves, but for all Christians. This was really the paradigm. They said, you follow a crucified Messiah, a crucified God. This kind of self-sacrificial service, this kind of walking into unjust suffering to love other people for the sake of other people's good. That's what you should go after. 
And what Wolf recognizes is that that did a lot more to advance these kind of, uh, to, to really, not to advance, but to revolutionize the political and social structures of the ancient world. That's what Christians did throughout time. They acknowledged that. They, they recognized, okay, to be Christian is not just to accept unjust suffering. It's not just to expect unjust suffering. It is to intentionally step into unjust suffering for the good of people around me. See, if you want to follow Jesus, then you will end up at the cross. That's what this text teaches us. When we suffer for the gospel when we suffer unjustly as we carry out the gospel, when we suffer unjustly for the sake of the people who are causing our unjust suffering, that most prominently displays the gospel. And so we must actively walk into that, not just I'm not just saying randomly or just, you know, all the time. But I'm saying there will be times in our lives where we will have to actively walk into the risk of unjust suffering for the sake of loving the people, in fact, at times, who are causing the suffering. Now, do you know what the world's situation, uh, excuse me, the world's solution is to kind of this situation? Um, so you guys know what cancel culture is? Cancel culture. I went to my handy, my handy dandy Urban Dictionary to tell me what cancel culture is. And Urban Dictionary, Urban Dictionary tells me cancel culture refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support for or canceling public figures and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Now, oftentimes, that, this doesn't just stick with public figures or companies. It's basically any people anywhere, right? This is a big thing on social media where basically if anybody does anything wrong ever, um, you cancel them, right? Meaning you stop being friends with them or you stop talking to them. Essentially, you have seized the moral high ground. And so you never have to deal with this person ever again. And this is kind of the world's solution to things. Um, honestly, I just, I'm just, I'm just, I don't know. I, I hate politics. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna be honest with you guys here for a second. Like, um, like I, I really, sometimes I'm online, like sometimes I'm on social media and it's very, it's very frustrating because what I see is a lot of like outrage. And I'm not, I get it. Like I, I understand why people get outraged about certain things. And certainly some things are more outrageous than other things. But I would say that outrage, while often justifiable, is seldom helpful. You know, because sure, you can look at a lot of things in the world and just be, like, outraged about it, right? I think for a lot of people, there's something that happens. We feel like if we can get mad about something, it makes us right, you know? And honestly, it makes us feel better about ourselves. 
even if we don't really do anything about it, right? Like we might be like, oh, these rich billionaires, you know, like they don't care about the, the poor, you know, they don't care about the poor person. Like they're not out there on the streets, like helping anybody. Like they're not giving. They don't volunteer. And a lot of times the people who say those things also don't do those things. Don't give. Don't volunteer. Don't care about the man on the street. You know, oh, then, you know, everything is, everything's bad. Everything's wrong. Like, how dare they do this? How dare they do that? You know, it's, a lot of times it's racism, right? And I'm not saying that we should not be justifiably outraged when something like what happened to Ahmaud Arbery happens. But sometimes it's like a, a little racist comment, right? And I don't know. Have, have you never been racist ever? I, I have. I certainly have in my life. What does that merit from us? What should we do? Outrage doesn't really move the culture. It might temporarily. It creates certain new words, particular language, even normative behavior. Sometimes these things happen for a little bit, and then there's usually a backlash, and it creates a situation that is much more divisive and political than where we even started from. The, for those of you who know me, you kind of know like I am this way, but I don't really care about power or influence or to sit at any table. I really just don't. And honestly, in dealing with like nonprofits and people who are out there helping not being able to speak that political language has actually confused a lot of people that I've worked with. You know, because I just don't really care. Like, I just want to do what's, what's going to help. Us getting on top and trying to shame people into changing is never going to happen. It's never going to work. That's not how things work. Right? Uh, this is something Dr. King wrote or said. He said, the ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral beginning the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder the hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes, returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And I think sometimes we feel like the only way to deal with certain people is with violence. You know, to destroy them. Maybe it's not physical violence, but it is with aggression, it is with shame, it is with belittling. The church will never do anything trying to do that. In fact, in the, in the first uh, couple centuries of the church, the way that the church, <laughs> and look, I'll say, I'm going to say this too, even before I get in, there's a lot of like passive aggressive church on church hate out there. 
like honestly. Um, and I'm guilty of it. And I just, I, like, I just don't want to do that. Over the first couple centuries of Christianity, countercultural, Christ-sustained care for the sick and the poor was what won many away from paganism. That's what it was. It was basically people suffering for the sake of people who are suffering. Uh, when Roman Emperor Julian uh, wanted to breathe new life back into the ancient Roman religion, so he wanted to bring back the Roman religion, and he saw Christianity as a growing threat, he wrote this in frustration to the Roman high priest of Galatia. So he wrote this letter, and he said this. He said, atheism, and that's what they call the Christian faith. So ironically, you know, uh, they're calling Christianity atheism because obviously Christians don't worship the God he's talking about. So don't get confused. Okay, So Christian faith, I'll just try to use the brackets so you don't get confused. But the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans, uh, again, Christians, care not only for their own poor but for ours as well, while those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Right? He's saying, basically, they're making us look bad because everybody's suffering. And in fact, the Christians were suffering. But they were helping one, he's saying, all within the church. They were helping everybody who had need. And then they would go outside of the church and they would help those outside of the church. And he's saying, essentially, they're making us look bad. Right? We should be the ones making them look bad, but they're making us look bad. The gospel is most prominently put on display. Now remember, these Christians, they didn't have power. They didn't have any political power. They didn't have any clout. They weren't going for that. They didn't need that. They didn't want that. They just wanted to help the people who were in need, and they were willing to face whatever suffering it would take to do that. They didn't care about how they looked. They weren't trying to look good. Like, the gospel is not most prominently put on display by the funnest picture with the best filter. That's not convincing. That doesn't convince anybody of the gospel. The gospel, so, and I have to say that not only because we shouldn't do it as a church, but because you shouldn't want it as a Christian. Like, that shouldn't be what you're looking for. The gospel is most prominently put on display when Christians love people who don't appreciate it. When we politely serve people who are rude to us, when we are patient with those who are impatient toward us, when we do our jobs excellently, even when our efforts go unrecognized and underappreciated, when we forgive those who don't even realize they need our forgiveness when we risk disease, when we risk persecution, when we risk hurt, when we risk a loss of reputation, to stand for the gospel, when we tolerate those who are not only intolerant but intolerable, when we would die for those who would kill us. That's what demonstrates the gospel 
at its core. It's not morality. It's not philosophy. It's the good news that the person at the center of our faith, the paradigm of Christianity, God himself suffered unjustly for us. And that's why you cannot run from unjust suffering whether it's from your kids or your parents or your boss or your friend or your neighbor or a stranger or the, the, the people on the Internet. Like, I'm not good at piano, but I like playing piano. Um, I actually, like, found a keyboard on Craigslist. It's, like, a really super cheap keyboard. It's, like, it's like 25 bucks. It's a ghetto keyboard, and I just keep it. It's by my desk where I work, and... Every once in a while, I'll just, like, put on my headphones and, like, play piano. And, um, you know, I played when I was little, and I hated it. And then when I got older, I regretted that I didn't keep doing the lessons. And, uh, you know, the thing is, like, and I'll, I'll print out these music sheets, and I'll, like, you know, like, oh, I want to play this. I want to learn how to play this. And I'm, like, not good, right? And I'm not good at reading music, even though I was in band, like, my whole life and stuff like that. And um, so it takes me forever. Like, I have to go and, like, figure out the notes and like, you know, I have to like play the chords. And, you know, the most challenging sections of a piece are like the ones that you, like for, it's like the ones that I, I hate, right? It's like, oh, it's frustrating. I get real mad. And, you know, it's like, ah, oh, like I hate this, right? But the thing is, if you, if you endure it and you master it, Right? Not that I don't, I don't even know if I've ever mastered it. But there's this feeling that comes out. Like when you're able to play it perfectly, right, that becomes typically if you think about a great piece of music, it's the most challenging part, right? It's the most difficult part. You think about a song. It's the part where they're hitting the, the high note that, that nobody else can hit. That's the most beautiful part. Right? Like that's the most beautiful piece of music. It's right there. It's in that most challenging, most difficult, most complicated part. The most powerful reward is often associated with the greatest risk. Because when we're willing to walk into unjust suffering, like that is the most beautiful part of Christianity. This is why it is particularly exemplary of the gospel. To risk your earthly death for someone else's eternal life, that it's not a small price to pay, but it is beyond the greatest of prizes to win. And Jesus, Jesus did not just risk suffering. Jesus was assured suffering. This is from Acts 2. Acts 2, 22. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Do you, you see that right there? Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him 
to be held by it. Unjust suffering is particularly exemplary of the gospel because it demonstrates the depth of God's sacrificial love for us. Jesus willingly walked into that unjust suffering for you and for me. Now, I'm just going to conclude with this. What if I'm facing, what if you're facing unjust suffering right now? And perhaps it's not murder, you know, or racism. And that's okay. You know, that's okay. Like, those aren't the only kinds of unjust suffering that exist. It might be from a boss or a coworker. It might be from a parent or a child or a stranger. And I think the most comforting thing I could tell you if you're facing unjust suffering is that God himself faced it. And think about it for a second. God himself, the freest being in all existence, in fact, the only truly free being in all of existence, chose to suffer unjustly. God chose to suffer unjustly so that unjust people could be spared their just suffering. He suffered even though he didn't deserve it so that we could ultimately be spared it even though we do deserve it. Let's make use of the comfort that is offered in Christ and let's take every opportunity that we have to offer that comfort to those who are around us. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we thank you so much that you love us so much that you would choose to suffer unjustly for us. That in all of the suffering that we face, God, including when it is not merited at all, God, including when we are just facing the wrath of people, including when we want to help and are condemned for it, when we want to love and are unloved in return, when we want to do good and are considered to be evil, uh, when we are criminalized, when we are abused. God, in all of that, you see us, you hear us, you know us. Even when we're hurt by the people who are closest to us, God, you know what that's like. Uh, you know that pain, and you went through it, God, for us to demonstrate the depth of your sacrificial love. We thank you so much. We pray, God, that uh, you would give us the comfort, the power to endure, and the courage even to walk into suffering at times or the risk of it uh, for the sake of the good of those who might benefit, God. Give us that heart, Jesus. Give us your heart. Teach us and lead us and grow us in that way. We thank you so much, God. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.